Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. Commercial subsidiary. Of the BBC. I'd never been to Antarctica before. You can't go to the Antarctic for a week, you know. It was a five-week trip in the end. We were there to film leopard seals, which are these, you know, very big seals hunting penguins. And we weren't quite sure exactly where they were going to turn up. We thought it was a particular bay, but we needed to be mobile. You know, if you just end up in one place and there were no leopard seals there, you're stuck there for five weeks with nothing to film. Welcome to a brand new series of the BBC Earth podcast. The podcast that's trying to take control in an uncontrollable world. The thing about going and making wildlife films is, once or twice before, I've had to walk back into the office and say... It didn't happen or we didn't get it. And it is possibly the most embarrassing thing that will happen to you. You're a producer, so you need to produce the goods and just deliver. If you're a new listener, please come on in. I'm Emily Knight, and here on the BBC Earth podcast, we tell stories of wild places and wild animals and the wild people who love them. Each episode has a few different stories from all over the world, united by a theme. And this episode is all about control, or lack of it. About the best laid plans shot to pieces by a world that doesn't care for your schedules and agendas. You can try to control as many of the variables possible, but you will not control the weather and you're certainly not going to control what the animals do. I'm Johnny Keeling and I'm the executive producer on Seven Worlds, One Planet. Seven Worlds, One Planet is the latest spectacular BBC natural history series all about the wildlife of the seven continents of Earth. And for our first story... We're joining Johnny and the filming team on their way to film leopard seals in the Antarctic. So the plan was to fly from the UK to Punta Arenas in Chile and then we were going to fly from the bottom of Chile across to the Antarctic to one of the islands there. We would be met by a small boat from the Falklands and that could be our base while we're in Antarctica. So we started booking everything. So you have to get permissions from the Foreign Office about flying drones, you have to speak to the scientists, permissions from the Argentinians. You can't fly with lithium batteries, and we need lithium batteries for the drones. So I had to get special letters from the airlines to allow me to even fly internationally. I suspect there was probably 50 or 60 bags, possibly more, maybe 70. Every single airport you go through, everyone's getting very jumpy about all of that. Anyway, I got to within about two weeks, I think, of us meant to be departing. And we've booked everything, we're committed, we're in this sort of ground rush as you head towards a shoot. And the airline company said, oh no, we can't take you and all those bags, um, it's not possible. So we were suddenly thinking, well, we have to go. There's only a certain window of filming in Antarctica, and if we miss that, that's it. So we all then got on the phones and started calling all of the cruise ships that were going to head down from South America to Antarctica so they could give us a lift. There's boats which take tourists across the Drake Passage and you cruise around the Antarctic. You look at 
penguins and killer whales and a lot of them are, are really luxurious and it's thousands of pounds and it's a sort of you know your lifelong uh, dream I guess we started phoning them up and emailing them but everyone was just saying, no sorry we're full and then eventually we got a response from a really nice person and she said yeah we've got a birth for you it's amazing it's cost I've kind of something around like $20,000 or something for the birth, but you can have it for nothing. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is just amazing. And I cycled home from work that day thinking, we've done it, we've got our first lift, it's gonna be brilliant. And then she messaged me the next day and said, I'm really sorry, I've just sold it. I was like, you're kidding me. So we're back to square one at this point. And this was probably about a week to go before we were due to leave. I think the researcher had already left not knowing whether we were gonna make it or not. Eventually this French guy, um, Nico, I won't forget his name, he sent a message just saying, yeah, we've got three cabins left. It's got 290-something Chinese tourists on. They're going to have a Chinese New Year, and you can just join this boat. I was like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. And then two camera operators got stuck in Buenos Aires, and all the gear was impounded. They wouldn't release it, and I still don't really know why. So eventually the fixer for us who helps us to go through those countries signed a document saying that if we didn't do everything correctly, he would give up his entire house, having only just met the camera crew on that day. But eventually they got released the morning when we were due to sail. We finally got on with all our bags and the boat pulled away and we waved everyone off at the port and I sort of looked out and there was a sun shining on all the mountains. I genuinely felt like crying because we'd gone all this way and we'd finally done it. We were on the boat and the first thing we did was we went and had a glass of champagne <laughs> with the camera operator stood at the back of the boat. It was a, yeah, it was a really special moment. Of course, the calm before a massive storm. <laughs> It's the roughest ocean in the world. Around the bottom of the globe, it's unbroken by land. You know, it's just swirling around the, the southern ocean. It's, it's incredible. The captain came over the tannoy and said, Everyone needs to go to the cabin. The waves here are eight metres. It's really going to be a serious storm. I spent two days, basically, laying in my bed, being thrown around so dramatically. I mean, I was quite high up on the ship, my cabin was, and the waves were kind of crashing over, you know, past the window. And as you stood up, it was like being an astronaut. You were sort of weightless, and you're flying across the room in slow motion, and then you get plastered on one side of the, the cabin, and then you'd try and go to the bathroom, and they had these big, thick handles, and you could just hold onto them and sort of brace yourself as you managed to... I mean, you, you, you can't stand up to have a pee. You just can't because you just it's going everywhere, so you have to sit down to pee. I went out into the corridor a few times and you were just kind of getting launched from one side of the corridor to the next, and I'd get about 20 metres up the corridor and think, this is pointless, it's just pointless. I ate nothing. I just had one packet of jelly babies that I'd had for the flight, and that's all I ate for two days, just these jelly babies. Once we got down to the Antarctic Peninsula, which is this big spit of land that sticks out from the Antarctic, once you get in the sort of shelter of that, it seems to calm down a little bit. I walked up onto the top of the deck and the sun came out and it was like being on a completely different planet. It really was. It was like being on Venus or something. Not that I've been to Venus, but there were icebergs everywhere, not a single sign of humanity. And then suddenly there were humpback whales next to the boat and penguins everywhere. 
there was sort of mist rolling around and it was really special and it just felt even more special having sort of survived a couple of days of uh, severe weather. And there were some French women. So I said, oh, what are you doing on the boat? And they said, oh, we're the, we're the dance troupe. And I suddenly thought, oh, are you kidding? They said, no, no, we dance uh, every night. They said, you should come. Why didn't you come tonight? We're, we're performing at nine o'clock. And I said, OK. So we turned up there and sat down and... Well, it was, it was like a sort of cabaret. It was like a sort of uh, Moulin Rouge type thing. And it was, I mean, it was, it was really good. And they had a uh, sort of Velcro down the side of their trousers. And so suddenly they just ripped them off. And I was actually slightly embarrassed to be there because I, I felt like I shouldn't be. I should be out watching wildlife. We had that one little moment of luxury of having a dance troupe dancing through the Antarctic in amongst all the icebergs and these extraordinary scenes. And then we had weeks and weeks of not eating particularly well. Um, yeah, you just take the rough with the smooth. I think that part of being human is a desire to establish order amid the chaos. We write lists, we alphabetise our bookshelves, sort a packet of sweets by colour, arrange our children in height order for a family photograph. Things feel more manageable somehow when everything is in the right place, neat and labelled. We do this in the natural world too. Open any natural history textbook and there they are, living things, flora and fauna neatly arranged by domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family genus, species. Approximately half of all named species on Earth are insects. About half of those are beetles. Uh, I happen to be a beetle specialist, so, you know, for me, this is all wonderful stuff. The job of trying to establish order over our messy and chaotic natural world, finding new animals and giving them names, is done by taxonomists. Like this man, Quentin Wheeler. I'm Quentin Wheeler founding director of the International Institute for Species Exploration. You do get those eureka moments, you know, standing in the middle of a rainforest and you recognize a new species on site in the field. Often, however, the discovery comes later. Often you have to get them back to the laboratory. It may involve sequencing the DNA, certainly it involves microscopy. But as a taxonomist, I can assure you that eureka moment's no less exciting in the lab than it is in the field. There is an exhilaration. I feel like I've just summited, uh, you know, a great mountain. I was studying this obscure little beetle, a tiny genus called Dasiceris, and I think they're just so cute. They're about uh, maybe two millimeters long or so, maybe three and they have long spindly legs and antennae. And to a beetle person, they're very cute. And I was collecting in the Appalachian Mountains and collected one with two big spots on its back. Well, the known species has no spots at all. And so in the field, I instantly knew this was something significant. It's hard to describe the, the intellectual reward of realizing that you've discovered a new life form. I don't have an exact number, but I've named more than a hundred species. Of course, I have my favorites. There were these really incredibly interesting to me, tiny beetles in the Southern Appalachian Mountains of North America. They're flightless, blind, their heads are very smooth. And one of those, because it had this broad helmet-like shiny head, 
I named after Darth Vader. I've named new species after uh, the rock star Roy Orbison and his wife, for example. It was a water beetle, Erectochylus orbisonorum, but others have been incredibly clever. There was a, a new species of parasitic wasp named after Lady Gaga. The bit of DNA sequence which differentiated that species from its relatives happened to be G-A-G-A. So the, the Gaga was coded, if you will, right in the DNA. We've discovered and named approximately 2 million species. A conservative estimate is that another 8 or 10 million species exist. Some people will argue there's as many as 100 million additional species. The distribution of life on Earth is basically unknown. The mission of taxonomy is to inventory every kind of plant, animal, and microbial life form on the surface of an entire planet, and moreover, reconstructing 3.8 billion years of evolutionary changes that explains the diversity we see today. Taxonomy is so audacious in its mission that it really is comparable only to cosmology. We find it easy to get behind astronomers who are trying to map the massive number of stars in the Milky Way. The difference is the universe will exist a thousand years from now, largely in the form it exists today, whereas life on Earth will look wildly different in a hundred years from now or two hundred years from now. So there's this uh, enormous urgency to collect what we can now. On average, about 18,000 new species are named each year. At least 20,000 species disappear each year. So for the first time in history, the number of species disappearing is equal to or greater than the rate at which we're discovering them. So many species that we don't discover in the next few decades will probably never be known. And that saddens me because each species has something to teach us. It hasn't been long since we discovered the longest insect measured by body length ever seen on Earth, a large walking stick from New Guinea. And if there are nearly two foot long insects we haven't found, it makes me wonder what else we don't know about. As a taxonomist, I really feel like we've only scratched the surface in terms of understanding the diversity of life. 
I was the sort of person that that is always prepared for what came next, that was organised and and ready for for what was coming in life. But that week made me realise that that was a complete illusion. We're never really in control. Raina Wynne, author of The Salt Path, remembers a week which changed her and her husband Moth's life forever. She met Moth when she was still a teenager. I was 18 when I first met Moth in college and I went into the college canteen, bought a cup of tea and sat down on one side of the room. It was quite a crowded room, but as I looked up, there was a parting between the heads of people in the room and on the other side of the room, there was a young man in a white shirt with the most dazzling blue eyes dipping a Mars bar in a cup of tea. And I thought, that's the one for me. They fell in love, tied the knot, made a life together. An idyllic fairy tale life in Wales. And, and we had this idea that we would find a ruin in the hills somewhere and restore it and make that our home. So by the time we were about 30, um, we did actually find that place and we did exactly what we dreamt we would do. We converted a barn, we, we restored it from, from a state of you know, complete dereliction to our home. But it wasn't just our home, it was our business. People came and stayed with us and, and spent their holidays there. And we kept sheep, grew vegetables, and our two children grew up there. We'd bought that place with the intention that it would be our home till the end. That wasn't how things worked out. We had a financial dispute with a lifetime friend, which unfortunately ended in a court case. That saw us being served with an eviction notice from our home. Rayner and Moth invested in a friend's business, and when it went under, they discovered their home was on the line. The court gave us one week to pack the 20 years of life into boxes to closed down our holiday letting business, to pack our home, to pack everything that it took to run a small farm. Rainer and Moth lost their home and their income from the holiday business. They were made homeless, living off less than £30 a week. And in the same awful week that they were turned out onto the street, as if that wasn't enough, they received some more bad news. My husband, Moth, had a what we thought would be a routine hospital appointment where we expected him to have a, a diagnosis for how they could repair some sort of ligament damage in his shoulder. He was actually diagnosed with a terminal neurodegenerative disease that has no treatment and no cure. So not only had we lost all of our past that our home represented, we then lost all of our future that we thought we would be able to have together. In that incredible week, the whole structure on which our lives was based totally disintegrated. In those weeks that followed the loss of the house and the diagnosis, I felt a complete sense of my whole life just disintegrating. I was slipping into a very, very dark place. 
we were hiding under the stairs, not hiding thinking that we would be able to change things, just because we knew that we would never, ever go back. So we were just hanging on to those last few minutes. And it was in that minute that I saw a book in a packing case. It was a book I'd read decades before called 500 Mile Walkies by Mark Wallington. It was the, the book written by a young man who'd walked the southwest coast path with his dog. And just then, in that desperate minute, the idea of just packing a rucksack and going for a walk seemed like the most obvious thing to do. There was a huge draw of the idea of spending time in the natural world, in a wild place, where I'd always gone to when things had gone wrong. They set off on a 630-mile path that goes from Minehead in Somerset through Devon, along the Cornish coast, and ends in Poole in Dorset. It's an incredibly rugged path of, of headlands and coves and beaches and woodland. And it has an ascent that's equivalent to climbing Everest nearly four times. That makes it a really tough path to walk because every day is like walking a roller coaster. A hundred nights of sleeping wild on the headlands of the southwest. A hundred nights to become completely immersed in that wild environment. So we didn't know where we would put our tent each night or what we would wake to some mornings because we often camped in the dark. One memorable morning, they woke up looking over Kynance Cliffs in Cornwall. To wake up four in the morning, sitting in a damp, foggy, misty landscape on the top of a headland, just as the light was starting to break, listening to seals calling to each other in the coves below. They were magical things that we could never possibly have encountered had we been travelling on a different journey, a journey that had money to put us onto a campsite or, or to buy food. The fact that we had nothing exposed us to a world that we might not have seen otherwise. There is something unknown that can occur when we allow our bodies to just become part of the natural environment and do what we were built to do, which is just to walk. Hard as it was to lose our home, if we hadn't done that, we would never have walked the path and we would never have discovered how that could help him. And so for that alone, I, I wouldn't change a thing and I would walk that path tomorrow. The path seems to have allowed us to find a way to not cure Moth's condition because we can never do that and the day will come when it does overtake him but at least to stall its symptoms for a short while so we keep walking as much as we possibly can. Moss was given a life expectancy measured in months. Six years on, and he's just graduated with a degree. And he and Rainer recently returned from a month-long walk in Iceland. Trying to control nature is a pretty futile task. The natural world does a good job of controlling itself. Thanks to the guiding hand of evolutionary pressure, 
animals and plants within a single ecosystem can live, not in harmony exactly, but at least in a kind of balance. No one species dominates. Every animal has just enough resources to do their thing. When we start meddling, bringing plants and animals into habitats they're not supposed to be in, the results can be devastating. Pigs have been here with, like, Captain Cook. Captain Cook brought more of the European pigs and boars and introduced those to the Hawaiian Islands. These pigs know no boundaries and they tend to go where they want to go and eat the native plants. This is Melissa Start the Fisher. recorder now and just let it run because it has a full battery. She's director of the Kauai Forest Program on Kauai Island. It's like it's recording really well. Lots of little bars. <laughs> if you went off the west coast of California and kept heading west, you would hit the Hawaiian Islands, starting with Hawaii Island, which is the big island. And then we are at the exact opposite end of that island chain. We're on Kauai, or Kauai, pronounced both ways. The center of our island is green and lush, and nobody lives there. Ever since humans have been on the Hawaiian Islands, they've been introducing plants and animals that make their life better. It's not just the pigs. One of the big ones being strawberry guava. So strawberry guava is kind of an amazing plant. They're pink on the inside. They have some very crunchy seeds. It tends to take over areas, but many people love strawberry guava because as you're hiking along, you can just pick them off the tree and eat them. These invasive species spread all over the island, including an area of protected bogland called Kanaile, under the shadow of Kahili Mountain in the lush green heart of Kauai. So this area is a bog. This one is unique because it's the last intact low elevation bog left in the state. The bog has a lot of pigs. They walk through and they trample and create those muddy wallows and eat the native plants. And the strawberry guava were growing larger. So we saw this area, this unique low elevation bog, and saw an opportunity to protect this. You can't really protect in an open system without a fence. So the first step, we hired a fence crew. We had already flagged the fence and all the noise that they're making, it pretty much scared all the pigs out. So luckily we had no pigs inside the fence once it was closed. Once we fence an area and there's no animals left, then the weeds go crazy and they just grow and grow and grow and start taking over more and more. Our teams went in and started removing these invasive plants. You cut around the bark, kind of frill the bark. The herbicide is mixed with dye and you put it into these frills around the stem of the strawberry guava. And then you use your clicker and you click, okay, there's one, I've treated one. Since 2008, we've removed a total of over 90,000 weeds from the area, over 82,000 strawberry guava. So for each one of those, somebody went up to that plant, frilled the stem, and put in a little bit of herbicide. <laughs> that took years. That's our plant count to date. 
it took us 11 years. And this is the magic of an ecosystem that has evolved over millions of years. Get those first links in the chain and the rest sort of comes together by itself. Give those native seeds buried beneath the mud just that one clear shot and back they come. The native plants start to thrive and take over. My favourites are the sundew. They have these little spikes that are bright hot pink and they're tiny. And so at first you don't notice them. And then as you see one, then you start to see more. There's, it's called rat's foot fern. To me, it looks like little mini Christmas tree arms. We're getting a lot more lobelia, these amazing flowers that shoot up. It's always such a thrill to walk into the bog and see them flowering. And so more and more of those are coming back. And when the plants come back, so do the insects. The picture wing fly, and there's native dragonflies that you'll see as well. And with the insects, so come the birds. When we go up there, I tend to see the white-tailed tropic birds flying around the area. The elopayo, which is a very curious, inquisitive bird. And the last time we drove up there a few months ago, we're pretty certain that we saw a native Hawaiian owl, a pueo, which is really amazing and unique to see. It took nearly 2,000 metres of fencing, gallons of herbicide and 11 years of back-breaking toil. But behind the fences of Kanaile Bog, harmony is restored. Over time, just by fencing and the weed work that we've done, we don't have to touch the area as much. We don't have to go back as often. We'll never completely walk away, but we will be able to take a lighter and lighter touch. And now the area is thriving and is working its magic. It's unlikely that Captain Cook or the early inhabitants of the Hawaiian Islands understood the damage they might do by bringing fat pigs and delicious guava to their new home. In these more enlightened times, Melissa has a better model for how we might fit into our environments, not as master and commander, resting control over it, but as a custodian, watching, preserving, giving a helping hand here and there. At the back of my house is, well, more of a yard than a garden, but I do grow tomatoes in tubs and a pot of lavender for the bees. The flower beds are a total mystery. Bulbs of all sorts, lovingly planted by previous inhabitants, weeds reclaiming the land they've been beaten back from. Sunflowers sprout under the bird table and all kinds of enigmatic greenery spring up between the pavestones. I may be a lazy gardener, but that's not the whole story. There's something nice about letting go of the need to control my small patch of the outdoors. Surrendering it to fortune. Sitting back and watching and waiting to see what green things poke their heads out of the soil. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. Stories were produced by me, Emily Knight and Eliza Lomas. For more animals, nature and science from BBC Earth, sign up to our newsletter at bbcearth.com newsletter to be sure you never miss a moment. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. 
Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 